Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope our listeners are doing fantastic. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday weekend, the Memorial Day weekend. How was your weekend, Tim? How are you doing? Are you coming back refreshed? It was great. Yeah, I'm coming back refreshed. I got a lot of grilling in, got a lot of outdoor time. And one thing I didn't see was any cryptids out there this weekend, which is a good thing for most people, including J.W. Oker, who is our guest today. He is a fantastic author who writes about cryptids and so much more, Lance. That's right. We have him on to discuss his book, The United States of Cryptids, a tour of American myths and monsters. But while it's about cryptids, there's more to it. It's about the belief in something that's fantastical and the desire to want to know more about the environment that we live in, and perhaps there's something else going on that we haven't discovered yet. Well said, and I think J.W. Oker really brings out that side in me. I'll speak for myself, but I have a feeling he does that for a lot of his readers as well. Go to his site, oddthingsiveseen.com. If you like this conversation, you'll definitely like all of his other works, and he's just a all-around interesting guy, cool guy, and does a lot of really, I think, necessary work in this field. And if you love this episode, let us know on social media. You can find us at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod. And Tim, I know by now that most of our listeners out there, they know where to find us if they wanted to listen to this episode without the commercials. But let's say you're a cryptid wandering the woods. You've never even heard of a podcast and you discover it. And then you want to listen to it without the commercials. Where would you tell a puckwudgie to go? Well, listeners can now subscribe to Crawlspace Premium on Apple Podcasts. It's $4.99 a month. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. All right, we're going to break quick for commercial here and we'll be right back with J.W. Oker. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s. But what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the hosts of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome back to the podcast. J.W. Oker, how are you today? I'm doing good, guys. Good to see you again. Great to see you as well. And I've been waiting so long to hear those words. Welcome back to the podcast, J.W. Oker. Unbelievable content that you are putting out there to the world. It's important and it's so fun to talk about. So you're always welcome back here. I definitely agree with at least half of that statement. <laughs> it's fun to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with all of it. And we spoke with you not too long ago, maybe last year, about uh, some of your books, Cursed Objects, A Season with the Witch. But today, we're here because we want to speak with you about your book, The United States of Cryptids. Yeah. I'm curious, what made you write this book? So, 
me and my editor after Cursed Objects hit and did pretty well, you know, we sat down and she's like, well, what do you want to write about next? What weird thing do you want to write about next? And we context that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what weird thing? And we went back and forth on a lot of topics just because, you know, I'm the, I'm the kind of person that I just, I have a wide variety of weird that I like. If you've ever been to a website, it's just all over the place. And she brought up cryptids. She's like, what about cryptids? I see, you know, you, know, you do have an interesting cryptids. I'm like, oh yeah, I yeah, totally do love cryptids, you know, since I was a kid. But then I was like, uh, but do we want to do a cryptid book? Like one of those comes out every year. There's encyclopedias left and right. There's a million of these books, right? There's not, nope people don't want another book and she was like no i think they do and then we kind of batted the idea back and forth and then we just landed on an angle for me that made me love it even more which is towns that celebrate cryptids i'm like oh now that's in my wheelhouse nobody's written that book before let's definitely do this because now i can travel to see stuff and write about monsters once we got through hashing it out it was the perfect project for me and i was bummed i didn't come up with it myself honestly my first thing that i wrote down when listening to the book because tim and i both did the audio version and shout out to the to the narrator great narrator uh mark sanderlin so the first thing i wrote down was when you embarked on this Every day when you woke up, were you like, I am one of the luckiest people in the world, that I'm <laughs> traveling around writing about cryptids? It was a little bit overwhelming, honestly, because in the book, we end up with over 70 cryptids, and it was a little bit overwhelming. I was like, oh, man, I have to write about a lot of monsters in this like time frame and like and travel. It's usual. When I start these projects, there's always a bit of overwhelming where I'm like, oh, I have to write a book and research a book and travel, and it just, it just gets overwhelming, but then... Once we were in, involved in it, it was almost not work. Like the, the travel part is beautiful because like my kids are with me. My family's with me. We're going to all these cool places. And then the research uh, for the first time in all of my you know, nonfiction books, most of that research was newspapers. And like they documented these encounters so well and almost on a daily basis that it was like, you know, usually with research these days, you have to like plow through like suspicious internet pages and like trying to get to like real sources. But with cryptids, they're, they're really well documented in newspapers, you know, throughout the country, small town newspapers throughout the country. And it was just so, it, it just, it was just, you know, it, was, it was an easier book to write than it should have been, honestly. So uh, did you drive to all these places with you and your family? Sometimes. So sometimes I flew by myself since we drove. We did a really cool trip through uh, New York. Obviously, New England is where I live. So those we did a bunch of road trips there. Flew to the Dakotas before uh, and then did a big road trip there. Also, because the field of tra weird travel writing was already kind of what I do for over a decade. I'd been to a lot already. So it, again, it was like um, just lots of fun. And like the girls, my girls who are, you know, 13, 9 and 4, they were they fell in love with this topic more than any topic that I've in, in my books, I write for I write kids novels too, and they don't care about them as much as they did about these monsters. Uh, it was just you can just tell that same like joy that I had when I found a John Keel book in the, my early teens. They're they're experiencing as well. There's something about cryptids and kids that they just gravitate toward them. Do you think it's the fact that they probably don't exist, so there's no like real clear and present danger? Bite your tongue, Lance. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it might be the opposite. I mean, I'm just in my own case, I haven't actually haven't interrogated my, I should have, I should have interrogated my kids on this, but um, I remember coming across cryptids as a early teenager and being like, Oh, this is a different kind of monster. Like this isn't the usual category. This isn't Frankenstein and Dracula. People say these exist. Like people said, like there's again, newspaper accounts and stories. And like, you just tell the way cryptids are handled in a way or just like every other kind of monster, right? You want to, you want a reptilian one and a, and a mammalian one and a flying one. You want all these things just like you want any kind of monster fan wants. But on the other side of it, these things are reported about in the newspapers and when Dracula and Frankenstein aren't, right? That At least that crust of reality around them, you know, makes these things even more interesting to um, the kids. They never ask me, do these things exist? Put it that way. They're always like, you know, are we going to see the Mothman? Are we going to see Bigfoot? Are we, they're always just kind of like thinking about it from that angle. Because again, in their minds, there are adults out there like proclaiming these things as having existed. And on top of that, 
whatever happened, the events happened. Those are those are history. So they, these are these have a, again a sheen of reality that most of our monsters don't. I gotta go back just a couple of sentences. If I take nothing from this conversation, it's gotta be crust of reality that <laughs> you just said on the crust of reality i wrote it down i am i am stealing that from you go, go for it i don't know what comes out of my mouth half the time so. <laughs> <laughs> all right well you mentioned mothman uh already and you mentioned the john keel book um which is the mothman prophecies so we I'm can get not, that out of the way <laughs> i'm not going to torture lance with any direct mothman questions um because i feel like we've been down that road a bit but what I really want to know about is the Thunderbirds, um, the chapter you wrote about Thunderbirds, because I feel like sometimes there's some overlap with the Mothman and the Thunderbird legends. Yeah, anything in the sky is always takes on a different pallor, right? Because the sky's open. It's not, it's not like you can hide in the forest in the sky, you know, and there are multiple like avian based, you know, cryptids and Thunderbirds are interesting, right? Because they're not something taken from a 1970s account, right? Like the, the, the big uh, golden age of like, cryptids especially bigfoot or the 1950s and 1970s right it's always some eyewitness sees it in the forest and then whatever havoc ensues but with the thunderbirds these are native american stories right and native american stories it's problematic for that reason as well because you know it's really easy when you take a concept from one culture take it to another culture you just kind of boil it down to like the most simple elements whereas calling it a myth is wrong calling it a story is wrong calling it a fable is wrong calling it a belief is wrong you know this idea of giant birds though is fascinating and do we have these accounts like in illinois of like birds trying to pick up children and it just kind of it gives you this continuity that every single like cryptid is trying to find, right? <laughs> you want ancient, you want you want old stories of them, and then you want modern uh, sightings of them. That's kind of like the perfect formula for a cryptid. And Thunderbirds have that. And again, the fact that giant birds existed at one time, like they just did. In the in the fossil record, we have giant birds. That's just a thing that happened. And what if one of those, those are still around is a fascinating question to ask. And again, all you have to do is look up <laughs> to, to hunt these. You don't have to go like to, Mount, to the Himalayas or go through the deepest forests of the Pacific Northwest. You just look up. You know what I found super interesting? I wasn't expecting it at all. Was the part that you uncovered about, I guess, communities inventing cryptids to prevent minorities from voting. Yes, like the Snallygaster in Maryland. It's exactly yeah. right. Like in the village, right? The, in my Shaman film where they invented a monster to keep everybody from being too curious and leaving the village. It's that. It's just a, a lot of scary stories are meant to scare people. You know, in, in that case, the insidious scare is don't go vote. You know, <laughs> don't exercise your right as a voter. Uh, instead, you know, let us continue to like control, control everything. So, yeah, using them as boogeymen is, you know, probably uh, origin story for more than, you know, us cryptid fans are comfortable with, honestly. We're all in New England currently, so I would love to start here really with uh, some questions about our surrounding areas. And uh, the Bridgewater Triangle has been an interest of ours for for years. Puckwudgies come up a little bit. Can you tell us about the Puckwudgie? I always joke this, my least favorite cryptid in the entire book is the Puckwudgie, even though it's so, such a delight to say. What happens with cryptozoology, right? It becomes monster hunting. It becomes Pokemon, right? So once upon a time, serious cryptozoologists, right? They wanted to only search out plausible biological entities, right? And that's mostly Bigfoot and, and water monsters at the end of the day. The cryptid fans, those of us who aren't as hardcore, you know, want to be hardcore scientists, we're like, no, but what about other monsters? And so we want to, we want to catch them all, right? That's Pokemon. We want, again, the avians, the reptiles. We want every kind, of, kind there is. And what's that done is we've pulled in, you know, aliens, you, you know, UFOs into this into this world. We pulled in myths. And the Pukwudgie, again, is more... It almost belongs in, in, in fantasy, fairy tales, right? Because they, they wear clothes, they have magic powers. They're like the same kind of, um, you know, tradition as leprechauns and gnomes and those kinds of things. Except in this case, they're, again, taken from Native American lore and then turned into like these like porcupine beings. They have like spikes all on their back. 
They carry spears. They can confuse your mind. And they like to, <laughs> they like this. I don't want to laugh about this, but they like to lure you over cliffs to your death. And then when you're found and there's no, like, no obvious reason why you just jumped off a cliff, it's just this rule to suicide, which is kind of where it happens in, like, the Hakamak area and that kind of stuff is any kind of intended a death like that. They're like, oh, the Pukwudgies did it. So that's why I joke that my least favorite is because they're so fanciful. But again, what, what some cryptozoologists like to do is say, well, maybe they're based on real creatures. Maybe there are, you know, bipedal porcupines or something like that. If I did a book of fairy tales of New England they'd be in that book too. So they're very kind of interesting creatures for those reasons. Uh, just a quick follow-up on that. Is your opinion then that the Pukwudgie is sort of a creation for families to deal with suicide of a loved one a little bit easier? They're in Native American lore, like the stories of Pukwudgies and how they were created and why they're in New England and also I think a little bit in the Midwest uh, and Ohio region is lore. And then the idea of seeing them around, you know, that that's happened where like <laughs> they lure you over cliffs to your death and that's the only, the only explanation, right? Because the coroner doesn't have Puckwudgie on his like uh, on his list of things he can check. So sticking to New England, you have a section here about the Dairy Ferry, and <laughs> there's also like cute cryptids too. I live in New Hampshire. I've lived in New Hampshire for more than a decade, and I was trying to find you know stories with legs, right? Stories that you know that had again the best cryptid stories took place over weeks, months, years, those, those and were, were you know categorized by the newspapers and followed and like all the kinds of things. But not every state has those, and New Hampshire is unfortunately a cryptid impoverished state. So when that happened, and it happened, you know, a handful of times, either they had very few cryptids or just Bigfoot everywhere. Then I would try to find what I call um, one night stand cryptids, where they got they got viewed maybe one time by one person, but that stuck around. So in New Hampshire, where there's like we have our Bigfoot, I'm sure we have a lake monster somewhere, and then we have this one story of this guy who out in Derry. Uh, New Hampshire, who goes out to chop down trees for, for Christmas, wants to, wants to see the Christmas tree, and runs into E.T., basically. E.T. with basset hound ears, right? This three-foot-tall, wrinkled-skinned creature. And the story is he, they see each other, and they just freeze for who knows how long. They just both freeze. And then the dairy fairy screams and runs away. And then that guy, again, his name escapes me. This is a real story. This isn't, like, myth. This is a literal guy. Uh, he goes and starts, you know, sending letters to various astrophysicists and people who are looking at the stars, right? And have and there's entire correspondence on the record of him describing this creature and asking them if they'd seen it before, those types of creatures before, what they'd be. So we had this like one encounter, literally just one encounter. And I put it in the book because, again, I needed a New Hampshire monster and it couldn't be Bigfoot. I had way too many Bigfoots in the book. I was cutting them from the team left and right. But we got the Dairy Fairy, which, again, also has that very important thing of a very cool name. <laughs> it's always, it needs to alliterate or it needs to rhyme. And then suddenly you have a, a creature that's worth passing around. I loved how you utilize the opportunity to capitalize on rhyming because it's the Dairy Fairy. And then the sentences that follow that, <laughs> You, you take the opportunity to, <laughs> to rhyme after, which was really appreciated. It's hard not to. It, this, one of my favorite things with the book that I, that I discovered while I was writing the book was just how much fun the names are, right? So again, Pukwudgie, Dairy Fairy, Snallygaster, Snarlyow. It just increased my vocabulary <laughs> a lot. These weird names. They're just like fun to say. They're just fun to say. Here's a fun alliteration. Sinkhole Sam. That was a good one. Yeah. Can you tell us about uh, Sinkhole Sam? Another cryptid in poverty state, <laughs> Kansas. But what I liked about Sinkhole Sam was A... You know, it wasn't a, a lake monster, right? It was a it was a, it was a pond based on a sinkhole. Um, but also, what I learned as well is generally the form that these creatures take and, and the popular mindset are from artists, right? Some artists will come along. Usually, it's, it's an artist out of paper, right? It'll, they'll give some form to this creature, and that becomes its official form. And with sinkhole Sam, it would been very easy for them to just create another, you know, serpentine reptilian lake monster. And instead, the most of the artists 
depicted as a giant worm. That's what they like to do with single salmon as a giant worm. I'm like, oh, that's different. I'll definitely want, I want single salmon there. And then the fact that, again, there was a story there. Like, it was seen by kids. It was shot at. People, like, parked their cars all the way around this, like, what looks like a pond, which is really just a sinkhole filled with water. And, you know, try to find this giant, long, legless creature. Again, the reports in it are vague, so nobody got a very good look at it. It could have been you know, a reptilian, you know, lake monster, a classic one. But little little enough of a scene of it that they just kind of described it as a worm in a sinkhole. Again, I was trying to get a variety of stories in there, a variety of monsters. It could have been easily been 50 Bigfoots, you know, the United States of Bigfoot. It could have easily been the United States of Lake Monsters. Like, there's just every state has a lake monster and a Bigfoot. And I wanted to, like, get away from those where I could. But, of course, include those in there because some of these Bigfoot and Lake Monster stories are hugely important and super interesting. But, I, again, I want it to be a zoo. <laughs> so I end up with, like, over 70 creatures, seven of which are Bigfoot and ten of which are Lake Monsters. But I try to pick those Lake Monsters where there's a lot of variety in the story. Your book is divided into geographical sections of the country. Which one of those sections stood out to you as more plentiful or a little bit more frightening? The Midwest. The area in the middle of the country. Although I'll say the, the state with the most interesting cryptids is West Virginia. So that's technically the east. It's not the East Coast. And it's not the South. West Virginia is a weird state. It doesn't fit anywhere. It's not on the coast. It's not in the South, but it's the South and on the East Coast. But in general, like Ohio, Wisconsin, those areas, Michigan, they have the most creatures. And the reason behind that is, I think, with cryptids, you need two things for them to be for them to take off as stories. One is you need habitat, right? They need to be rural, right? There's not very many urban cryptids. You know, there's some like giant rats and crocodiles in the sewers of New York. I think I, I put the um, the name Rouge in, in Detroit in this one, but mostly they're all in rural areas because you need that creature to run off into the forest at some point and not get caught. So it needs a habitat, which means it's going to be seen around a rural area, which is mostly, you know, the Midwest and like those kind of places. And on the other side of that is you need, you need boredom. Um, and what I mean by that is I always had this thought experiment. What if today somebody saw a cryptid in my town, right? I'm in Nashville, New Hampshire. I see it on the, on the, on Twitter, right? Somebody says cryptid in town. What would I do? I'd probably follow it on Twitter. You know, I definitely wouldn't get out of my house, go form a hunting party and go and go track it down like they would. But, but during the fifties to seventies, when there, you know, there's less to scroll, that's exactly what you would do. A Friday night with a cryptid is like, that's what you're living for. You're living for some kind of uh, excitement in town. Back then in those towns, that's what you did. There was, again, there was no, like, everybody wasn't busy. So there's there, you could form a posse really fast, or you could capitalize on it really fast at the local restaurants, or stories start out, every, almost every single one starts out, teens at night on the back roads in a car, red eyes. That's generally every single crypto story be- beginning. And the fact that that could launch weeks of mania just shows like there, there needs to be a certain collection of conditions for a, a cryptid to take take root and have a big story. Guess what I watched last night? What's that? The Legend of Boggy Creek. I watched <laughs> The Legend of Boggy Creek. <laughs> I rented it for three ninety nine, and I got about three quarters of the way through. So this is good. So The Legend of Boggy Creek is about a Bigfoot that, that attacked this town of Folk, Arkansas for a few days. One of the only cases, actually, where a Bigfoot fought people, like, actually was aggressive. Like, most of the time, <laughs> cryptids aren't aggressive at all. They're always just running away from us, even the big ones. But in this case, you know, the, the story is the Bigfoot reached into a house and tried to grab a woman who was sleeping. He fought her husband off, whatever. So this is a fighting, a fighting Bigfoot. And this was 1971, I believe, when this happened. And then the next year, this guy who had really no experience making movies decided to make a movie about the folk monster or the, or the Boggy Creek monster. So he made it. And it just, it, this, it, there's a reality to it because it was amateurly made and it was am- amateur actors, there's locals, local sites, local, local people being playing themselves that it felt like a documentary. So you felt like, oh, I'm actually watching, you know, <laughs> something that really happened, you know, in real time. And it became just kind of legendary for that. These days, with the power of that knowledge, and <laughs> it's a little hard to watch, but it's very like, um, 
I don't know. I've never seen a movie like it. I will say that the way it combines the folk and hippie music with like local actors to, to create the story. But the output of that is today, if you go to folk Arkansas and there's no reason to go to folk Arkansas, you'll never go there by accident. It's in the middle of nowhere. You're only going for this one thing, which is what I went there for. They have the Folk Monster Mart, which is this convenience store slash museum with a giant Bigfoot face above it. And like inside, there's tons of Bigfoot um, replicas, all because this movie made this Bigfoot famous. Now there's a giant store slash museum themed according to the Folk Monster. And of course, there's giant displays on the Beast of Boggy Creek and all that stuff as well. But I rewatched the movie during while I was writing the book. And I saw it one time back when I first started watching horror movies and I was just judging them based on VHS covers. I think I picked up Boggy Creek that way. You almost have to be really into the entire story to, to, to get the most out of that movie. In a country where we have a Bigfoot sighting in every single state, even tiny Rhode Island, tiny Delaware, the islands of Hawaii have a Bigfoot sightings, it made a, a Bigfoot famous, that one documentary, which is again kind of hard to do when there's so many big feet crowding the field. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. It's interesting that you spoke with the founder of the Cryptid Museum in Portland, Maine, and he had said Bigfoots are so popular because we're narcissists. Yeah, because we're narcissists. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's, it's so true. Because Bigfoot was a problem. He was a literal problem for me. I, I joke about him being a thorn in my side writing this book, but he was a problem. Like, I'd go in there and, like, every state has a Bigfoot statue. You know, even states with, like, really cool monsters. West Virginia, right? The Flatwoods monster. Amazing monster. No, mo- Nobody has a monster like the Flatwoods monster. Or the Braxton County Monster. This one has multiple names. It looks different. The story's different. It's basically a robot alien at the end of the day, which is kind of weird. And they have a museum dedicated to it. They've, they've capitalized on the Bra- Braxton County Monster really well. There's a museum. They have, like, ceramic lanterns that everybody has. There's, like, signs. There's, there's historical placards. And yet, despite having that unique monster, uh, last year, maybe a year and a half ago, they opened up the West Virginia Bigfoot Museum just, like, a block away from the um, Braxton County Monster Museum. Even though you have a unique monster that nobody has, you still have to celebrate Bigfoot. So Bigfoot was a real thorn on my side. And I went to him, I was like, why do we love Bigfoot as a character? Almost like Mickey Mouse, like a creation of culture. And that's what he said. He, you know, at first he was like, um, you know, when he was a kid, the only cryptids people knew were the Loch Ness Monster and uh, the Yeti. And these were exotic creatures, half the world away, the full width of the world away. To actually go find them, you had to be, you know, knowledgeable about exploration tech. You had to be able to survive. You had to be able to climb a mountain or, or use side scan sonar or whatever. Uh, he said it was an exotic thing. And then the late 1950s, when, or maybe it was early 1950s, when Bigfoot became a concept in America, suddenly all you do is like go to your nearest forest and you're a Bigfoot hunting. That's all you had to do. And that's what I was like. I thought, okay, that's, he's explaining the, the popularity of Bigfoot because it's, he's accessible. He's an accessible monster. And he's like, no, no, it's because we're narcissists. Basically, we like things that are like us. And Bigfoot is bipedal. He's a mammal. I, and some of the depictions, very expression face, you know, humor. Lauren Coleman is the founder of the ICM. He came to that conclusion through decades of study and like interviewing people and having all this thought into it. And the way I came to terms with it was just by thinking of um, Harry and the Hendersons, <laughs> right? So Harry and the Hendersons is this fun family comedy about a, about a family 
um, that hits the Bigfoot, takes him home, and he becomes one of the family, right? He has a sense of humor. He's, he's, he's got a gentle face. You can only make that movie in that, with that tone about Bigfoot. <laughs> it couldn't be the Lizard Man Escape or Swamp and the Hendersons, right? Suddenly, that's a total, that's a horror movie, right? If you have a reptilian man in, in your house. Um, or if it was like the infield horror and the Hendersons. It, again, totally different movie. You can only have that movie with a big, cuddly Bigfoot because we just love him as, you know, again, not even as a plausible biological entity, we love him just because we want to we want to find him because we want to make him our friends. <laughs> for some reason, we just love Bigfoot. And for that reason, he's super popular and he just got in the way of my book. Every time I wanted to find a unique story, there's a Bigfoot. Every time I wanted to find a unique creature, oh, I got to cut through all the Bigfoot stories to get there. Like, I just wanted to put him in the Pacific Northwest. That's where he belongs. You know, there's a lot of great stories up there. But, you know, he's in folk. He's in everywhere. He's in every state. We have them in New Hampshire. They're called, like, hide-behinds or something in New Hampshire because we have skinnier versions. Uh, when I went to Pennsylvania, right, they had their Bigfoots were small. They had small Bigfoot. They're just basically monkeys that, that liked apples. But again, they had to have their furred bipedal <laughs> primate cryptid because, again, it is believable. It is the most believable cryptid next to ocean creatures. Man, he's just everywhere. He's big. He's a star. He is a star. The Patterson-Gimlin film resurfaced. I think that was probably at least partially responsible for his uh, stardom. Now, there's some stabilized footage out there of this film. And I think you mentioned there was an AI version. Tell us about that. Patterson-Gimlin footage is, you know, two men, Patterson-Gimlin. They go out to go find a Bigfoot out in California. Get probably the best footage ever of a Bigfoot, but definitely the best Bigfoot footage ever. And then it becomes hugely controversial. It's a man in a suit. It's a real Bigfoot, all those kinds of things. It's very shaky. It's very, you know, 1970s, you know, guys aren't professional filmmakers. They're just out there with a camera on horseback. You know, over the years, we've tried to stabilize it using, you know, mechanical means. But now we have AI, you know, here taking our jobs and changing the world and also stabilizing the Bigfoot footage. And if you look at it, it's so smooth. It is, th- this footage now looks like now it looks like it was a Hollywood directed production. It is so smooth and like it almost destroys the mystery a bit, in my opinion. It almost like you're like, oh, that was a guy in a suit. Because <laughs> it's, it's just, and again, you don't know how much is you know the AI filling in artifacts or whatever. It is like perfect footage, it, and it loses that that sense of reality, like Blair Witch, right? If you film Blair Witch with like three cameras and you know. 4k and stuff it becomes a way different movie than what it was technology is advancing enough to fill in all the holes and you're like oh it's less impressive than it was with shaky cam and like blurry and all all those things that you know we we kind of associate with bigfoot footage these days so not real in your opinion no i don't think so and then if you get into like the history and the guy who claims to have been the guy in the suit you know it, it starts becoming and again the whole point of like they went down to find a bigfoot they found a bigfoot that's like you know that's kind of like kind of like convenient and then the Bigfoot is just walking along like it's used to walking on sidewalks, right? This <laughs> upright, it's like just loping, like again in the middle of the wilderness where you're assuming they're like bent over and going through brush and stuff. Now this thing's this thing has been on a sidewalk before. I'm pretty sure whoever's in there has walked a sidewalk. And again, the, the, the problem is the deeper you dig into Bigfoot, the more suspect he is. I, the, the 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 phrase, even though again plausible biological entity, giant humans, giant hairy humans. I mean, everybody in this room is a hairy human, humanoid, right? So just add another foot tall and some more hair isn't is not does not stretch the imagination at all. It seems like it should exist if it doesn't exist. Then you start digging into the 1950s, like where Bigfoot came from, and the term Bigfoot was from a journalist reporting on prints found around a construction site, a logging site. They were big feet, so going Bigfoot, and the person who owned that site was a notorious prankster, so a notorious prankster. So the so the idea that again, not Yeti, not Sasquatch, those are different stories, but the Americanized Bigfoot started on the site. Uh, the work site owned by a prankster <laughs> is, you know, very, very, very disheartening for those of us who want Bigfoot to exist. <laughs> as, much as, I, as much as I bust on him as like a thorn on my side, 
it would be really cool though if Bigfoot existed. I was thinking about this, and I was I was wondering this myself, and uh, I kind of feel like I want it to stay a mystery. I don't think I want to know for sure, like definitively, if it's all a hoax or actually real. And I call that the curse of the cryptozoologist because the second a cryptid is found, it's not a cryptid anymore. Like suddenly, <laughs> if Lauren Coleman, if, again, if we found Bigfoot tomorrow, every single cryptozoologist and fan of cryptids would lose it. It's not ours anymore. It's now it's like zoology or even anthropology, depending on how intelligent they are. Finding the thing you're looking for is the worst thing that can happen. <laughs> it ends your life's work, in other words, you know. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the same way. Like we found any of these creatures, you know, it would be exciting for a, for a day. And then you'd be like, oh, <laughs> which is kind of what happens, right? Gorillas are a great example, right? Gorillas are amazing creatures. They are just weird. They're weird creatures. They look weird. They look like they're invented by somebody, but they're very mundane to us these days. We see them in zoos. We see them all the time. But if we could step back and list the top weird creatures, gorillas should be there, but they never are because we're so used to them. But once upon a time, they were cryptids. Once upon a time, most of the world that was in Africa was saying, there's not giant hairy humanoids in Africa. I've never seen one. So it took a white man, obviously, because again, Africans knew they existed. It took a white man going in there, grabbing pelts and skulls and drawings and bringing them back to the scientific establishment saying, guys, no, these things are real. And then we just made gorillas really mundane. So I'm with you. I like them way better as legends than as just members of the zoological tree. The Flatwoods monster, which you referenced a little while ago, I loved that story that the town was kind of going into bankruptcy because of COVID. And it did something good for the town. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and this is generally a pattern for towns. I mean, we, we talked about it with Season of the Witch, right? Where Salem, uh, Salem started out as a, a seafaring port. all the, the first one in America plotted out all the... And this sounds like a digression, but I'll, I'll, I'll tie it back to Christmas here in a second. Uh, plotted out all the routes to the Far East, all that kinds of stuff. And then, you know, the all, all, sh- all shipping went down to Boston and New York, and Salem was left in the lurch. So then they had to become industry, right? They started being a, a leather producer, and then that kind of folded. And then Parker Brothers was headquartered there, and they made board games, and that kind of folded. And they're left with nothing but this story from their past, this piece of history about witches. So then they capitalized on tourism. So tourism is kind of the last gasp of towns trying to make it, make it, right? I think it's changing now with like work from home stuff. But in general, when a town's trying to make it, they're trying to make it on tourism. You, you kind of know they've, they've run out of options if they're trying to make it on tourism. And that happens with all the, these cryptid towns too, like uh, Flatwoods, like you mentioned in West Virginia. Also Whitehall in New York, which is a Bigfoot sighting. Even Point Pleasant, uh, the Mothman, all they have left is a flying a flying insect guy, you know, and they're doing well. They're really capitalizing on it. But again, it's, it's classic marketing. If you have something unique about your town, you you need to market the heck out of it. Otherwise, your town's like every other town. Like, what do you have that every other town in the country has? There's like tens of thousands of towns in this, in this country. And you all have pioneer history or colonial history. You all have a mountain nearby or ponds or farmland or a coast. You all have natural features. You all have some random World War II connection or whatever. You have that, that's that, that mass marketed statue in the middle of your park. If you're trying to like bring money into your small town, you got to come up with something interesting. And the thing is, cryptids are interesting. The Flatwood Monster. Nobody has a Flatwood Monster. Um, that's, that's again why I keep busting on it for bringing in a Bigfoot museum. Is because everybody has Bigfoot. That's almost like that's almost become a World War II statue. Like everybody has a Bigfoot sta- big, Bigfoot story. So yeah, it, it's it, you can tell you know when the town's dying, they really grab onto that thing that that makes headlines. You know, which is not a bad thing. I'm not saying it cynically. I think it's a good thing. I love that thing. I like that. I, lo- I like a town theming themselves according to the giant turtle they found in the 1950s way better than just theming themselves according to the nearest cities football team right which is to me is like very bland and very markety and very shiny and very corporate no 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 dig into your history find the weirdest stuff that happened in your history and then market the heck out of that because again i would say 
100% of the towns I went to for this book, I would never have gone to otherwise. <laughs> it wasn't for their monsters in their, in their past. They're out of the way. They're not, all, They're not. again, folk is literally so out of the way. You, If you ended up there, you need to question your life decisions first off, or you're a fan of Bigfoot. Those, those are the two reasons why you end up in folk. So, you know, I think they're good things for the towns. They really need to capitalize on what makes them different. And I wonder if the Nain Rouge had cursed the Detroit Lions. Maybe that's something they should run with. I mean, that whole curse really worked for the Red Sox. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, you have this little little devil imp in your in your marketing pocket. Use it. A good example of this is Norfolk, uh, Virginia, right? So Norfolk, Virginia is a city. It's not a town. It's on the coast. It's got a giant military base, Navy base there. It is a city. But one day, a couple of decades ago, a few decades ago, they're like, you know what? We need something unique to really unify our, our city. And they could have easily been like, we are the home of this naval base or whatever. They, there's so much they could have picked, right? Virginia history is full of colonial history. They could have picked a million things. And they picked mermaids, <laughs> literally out of a hat. There have been mermaid sightings in Norfolk, Virginia or off the or off the coast of North Virginia. Like, you know what? Mermaids are cool. So now they're the mermaid capital of the country. You go there, you cannot not see a mermaid. There's statues, there's like tchotchkes, there's uh, gift shops, there's businesses theming themselves according to mermaids. They just one day picked a monster. And that's how successful this can be. You didn't even have to have a monster in your past and you could turn it into a, a tourist draw, right? It's a lot better, I think, if, if it's in your past because there's a story around it. But again, it doesn't have to be. Just pick something interesting um, that no other town's doing and invest in that. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I feel like you're very hard to scare. I feel like it's difficult to scare you because you dabble in so much of this topic. But was there one cryptid that you were researching and people were telling you stories of that got under your skin? Not not really. And generally, I am hard to scare. Um conventionally like i definitely have my existential terrors and definitely being alone in a house but i'll I'll, ter- I'll terrify myself but um when i'm out in the field i'm hoping something weird happens something scary happens because that gives my makes my story more interesting maybe the infield horror because the infield horror even though you know the it's almost a home invasion story you know a guy comes home his kids are home he, the father comes home and this three-legged monstrosity is you know clawing at all the doors and trying to get in and stuff that's kind of scary if they're trying to attack but most cryptids like i said very rarely are they attacking. They're just showing up, getting sighted, and then running off into the brush. They don't fit the definition definition of monster in that sense because they're they're usually the, <laughs> we're usually the monsters chasing them. But I will say, like when I went to Point Pleasant and we were, you know, I took my daughter out at midnight into the TNT area to search those igloos. That was scary for sure. You you, you start putting yourself in the mindset, like, okay, this is this is 1961, uh, you know, dark. There's nobody coming to get us. Uh, you, you can definitely kind of imagine a monster in that situation for sure. One story that was really kind of psychologically horrifying was the Wendigo. Yeah, that's another good one because, again, uh, it's another one that's technically not encrypted. Nobody's ever seen a Wendigo, <laughs> really. It didn't start with the sighting, put it that way. It's another Native American. Again, very complicated. Not, it's not a story. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. But it's all those things. Also historically realistic. At one point, like it was even a, a psychological syndrome, Wendigo syndrome which I think since then psychologists have stopped using. But the idea is it's a monster of the cold. It's a it's a cannibalistic, sometimes it's a giant, sometimes it's more forest-like creature who represents cannibalism and dying from the cold. Because the idea was these people that lived in the far north in Canada and, and Wisconsin and modern-day Canada, Wisconsin, Michigan, those areas. New Hampshire. Yeah, New Hampshire, exactly. If you didn't <laughs> store up for the winter, you would, you'd run out of food. And then, you know, <laughs> you're faced with starving to death, freezing to death. Or eating your family. And that's how harsh it is, right? They created this idea of a monster saying, you know, if you 
succumb to that, to that impulse to you know eat humans to survive, you got possessed by the Wendigo or you became a Wendigo. And this actually happened. There are actually uh, accounts of uh, people, you know, consuming their families and being called, you know, Wendigo. So in that, in those stories, there's all these like stories of how to, how to cure a Wendigo. And of course our colonial perception, we grabbed that story and ran with it. We just turned it into a regular monster, <laughs> just an ice monster. Basically, mostly the way we depict it as like a kind of a cadaverous starving looking creature with horns or antlers, I should say, like maybe even a deer deer head. We just turn into like a boogeyman of the forest, when in reality, the story behind it is much more terrifying. This idea of just being trapped in the winter, no way to get anywhere, no food, and you have a family around you. It's, again, horrifying story. The, the reality is more horrifying than the, than the monster we made out of it later. So again, super interesting. So I'm going to do the reverse on this particular cryptid. The reality was a lot more amusing to me. Can you tell us about the story where the kid has a flat tire he's got the bag of filet of fish sandwiches <laughs> yeah the, i was i was laughing out loud it's a really good one like there's 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 top tier cryptids in my experience right there's some with really strong stories and strong visuals and the creature itself looks cool and the the lizard man is one of them right again it's one of those things if there was not a lizard man story we had to make one up because we, we need a lizard man <laughs> in the annals of cryptids this is actually past the golden age of cryptids this is, i think the 80s is when this happened um, he was coming home uh, from his job working at McDonald's, driving through Skateboard Swamp, which, you know, there's a road there and a little bridge and stuff. And he had a flat, a flat tire or something like he had, he had engine trouble. Right. So he pulled over um, <laughs> and then he started seeing this creature behind him. Right. This 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 creature. He jumps into his car, takes off. And this thing is like scrabbling at his. It's like almost a classic urban legend, scrabbling at his door handles and like uh, uh, scra- scraping his car. He eventually got away from it. But the next day, when he finally showed his parents the damage, this car was messed up. It was like scar- scratched up and beaten up. And on top of that, that is something that happened pretty regularly in that area. Um, often often it was ascribed to animals, right? Some raccoon or bear would kind of claw at the rubber of a, of a car or whatever. So there was like a, there was a precedent for this happening. And then at the end of the day, that just really fast just snowballed in this idea of this lizard man living out there to the point where there's a thousand newspaper articles interviewing this family interviewing this boy there the the town itself started like capitalizing on it with like museum replicas and stuff uh i think before that the, their most famous thing was like a bow weevil right? they, were, they were famous for having a certain type of insect and now they had this lizard man gifted to them by this basically this one story this boy in some ways classic it's a teenager at night <laughs> back roads and this glowing eyed creature attacks him but that turned into not a Bigfoot, right? It could have easily been a Bigfoot story. It turns into a reptile man, which is, you know, why it did that, who knows? But it is super fascinating. And again, once you start digging into the story and there's like skeptic explanations that are really funny and fascinating, the very funniest skeptic explanation is obviously that kid hit a tree and didn't want to tell his parents that he was like <laughs> driving while eating fish, fish fillet or whatever. He just, just wrecked the car and made up a story and that story became a giant myth in South Carolina, which I think is the best, best idea. I love that idea that this, that this boy's panic was born, a, born a legend. We got to try this. We got to try to start a legend. Jeez. It's hard these days. It's cause again, we're so, we're such scrollers that again, as somebody said, we, we, and this happened before, like a few years ago, there was a gnome that somebody saw crawl across a road. Right. And like, you look at it and like, and t- it happens on TikTok all the time. I think even when uh, the skinwalkers are very popular on, on TikTok, you see it, you see a video, it's a monster. And then you scroll to the next thing, which is whatever it is, somebody falling on a trampoline. And you scroll to the next thing. Back in the day, one cryptid sighting could, could fuel a newspaper for three months. And today it's 10 seconds of, at most, 10 seconds of attention. And then we're off to the next thing as, as we scroll or click whatever we're doing. Well, I think you just gave us the, the key there. You, know, you got to get it in local newspaper print. 
You do. It's it's, it's got, yeah. You you almost have to camp have a campaign around it. Whereas back in the day, the campaign just happened to you. Like I, like I'm sure that 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 kid from skateboard did not want press around him at all. Like poking holes in his story if it really was a story of him just wrecking the car and, and and trying to pull one over on his parents but uh yeah you'd have to almost ask for the attention which happens sometimes right every once in a while you get somebody with like a who are those guys that had like a um, bigfoot costume frozen in ice and then they did on a big tour and said and made us made a story that way you almost have to do that because otherwise i search for odd news all every day i'm looking for odd news and I, there's like a something sighted in a pond, in a pond or a lake every single day, but nobody cares. Nobody cares. Again, if the Loch Ness monster was discovered today, as, as opposed to when it was in the 1930s, we wouldn't have a giant myth that we. It's kind of sad, but uh, um, it just it just speaks to like how awful we've become, I guess. <laughs> I love the uh, idea of something existing that we don't know for sure, whether it's existing, you know, in a space outside of our imagination. And that's so wonderfully put down in words in your books, and especially this one. You kind of forget, like, how fun it is to just let your imagination go. When I talk to people who aren't cryptid fans, who don't believe in Bigfoot, those kinds of things, they put Bigfoot believers in a category, right? They're like, oh, those guys. <laughs> the tinfoil hat wears, they're, like, gullible and stuff, which may or may not may or may not be true uh but the point is what the spirit behind that belief in bigfoot is just wonder like it's it's somebody saying i hope there's more in the world than everything i've been told in school i hope our encyclopedias of animals aren't complete i hope we haven't explored every square inch of this planet even if it's true i still don't want it to be true so to me when somebody says i believe in bigfoot i i hear the wonder in that statement and i think that's kind of the best thing about it right hoping the world isn't just been scroll through <laughs> i keep using that phrase but that's really what i hear and i hear somebody that legitimately believes in it i don't come across it that often i mean i, I think i come across bigfoot believers a little bit less than, than you know that we've been visited by aliens people that believe that but most cryptids people don't believe in the crypt even cryptid fans don't believe in the cryptids like the infield horror was a kangaroo or you know the flying clam was just a story nobody's gonna say i really believe in the flying clam bigfoot's easier to believe in again because it's a plausible biological entity uh, all, anything underwater is plausible because we can't see what's under there but most people just love the ideas of monsters, right? They love the idea of a Pukwudgie, right? If, if, you, if you know the Pukwudgie story, you're my friend, right? Because we, we, we both have that same kind of wonder. We don't have to believe in it. And again, most people don't. But that, that space of wonder and imagination is why cryptids are, are important. I know a world without cryptids is a lot more boring. Again, even if not a single one of them is real, it's still more boring if a world without cryptids. But in this case, my sister's ex-boyfriend's brother did see a Pukwudgie. Oh, Yeah. You did, yeah. It wasn't a porcupine just standing up. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, what, one of the the stories you mentioned, I'm not sure if it was the underwater panther or the peninsula python, but one of them was a natural enemy of the thunderbird. Is that what I heard? Yeah, the underwater panther. Yeah, so, so are orcas, so are killer whales. Like everybody, so all these creatures, like the um, thunderbirds, are actually beneficent. They were they were terrifying, but they were actually kind of like the good guys. Whereas underwater panthers, which are, you know, another another uh, Native American story, were the bad guys. So all these giant monsters had, almost like kaiju, there was like Godzilla versus King Kong. It was, you know, in their stories are all badly. They're, they're not, again, boiling down to say the word gods is just a complete disservice to their stories. But they were just entities beyond humanity fighting fighting each other. They, they had squabbled just like anybody's stories of gods and, and heroes in, in any culture. Well, before we wrap up, um, this is not related to cryptids, but... It was on your website, oddthingsiveseen.com, and you did mention that you write children's books as well, and you have a new one called The Black Slide. I love that I love that you say in the description, you call it Hellraiser for kids. 
Yeah, that's that's how he that's how he pitched it. Fortunately, my editor didn't know what Hellraiser was, so I got it by her. And it's literally that. It's literally a bunch of kids go down a black tube slide and end up in a world of tormentors, like literally leather BDSM looking tormentors. The reason why I do that, going back to imagination, like kids have an unending uh, hunger for uh, imagination, right? Wonders. They want wonders, and to them. Horrors are well, actually to everybody. Horrors are also wonders. Awful and awesome are very close together. So they have a wide taste for beautiful things, but they also have a wide taste for scary things. And I always think it's kind of a disservice to kids to just feed them the same old stuff that we've been fed. Oh, here's another werewolf tale. Here's a, here's another zombie tale. Here's another you know vampire tale. And try to come up with new monsters for them because they'll take them. They'll, adults like us won't. We're so jaded. Like the the one millionth haunted house book comes out. I'm still reading that thing. <laughs> That's a comfort for me. I want more haunted house books. Kids is a space where you can actually experiment. Like they're not jaded. They'll take any mon- The most made up monster is equal to them to Frankenstein, right? Because they're all, it's all the same to them. So you have the opportunity to really kind of push their bounds and they want their bounds pushed. And I think it's better when I'm making, make, trying to make up a monster, make up a world. I'm trying to induce wonder in myself. And if I'm just writing another werewolf story, it's hard for me to have wonder about a werewolf. I mean, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I've heard a thousand tales. I, I know it, it just, it's a beaten up story. So it's hard for me to convey wonder about a werewolf to a kid. But if I can create a world or, or a creature that's, that instills some wonder in me, hopefully it's easier on the kids. But yeah, at the end of the day, though, I'm just trying to scare the kids. And like pin, Pinhead's way scarier than a werewolf at the, at the end of the day. I have one coming out next year called The Ghost Show, where I try to reinterpret ghosts. It's... um. The way, I, the way I pitched that one, it's Ghostbusters meets Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as directed by David Cronenberg. So it's it's, a, it's kind of a story there, with a little bit of basket case thrown in, if you guys know what Hen and Lauder's basket case is. My time as a children's author is short-lived, I'm sure. But as long as they're letting me, I'm going to try to do weird st- weird stuff for kids, because that's kind of what I would have wanted as a kid. You know, I, I there's a, they'll, they'll find the werewolf stories and the zombie stories, but give them something different is kind of what I feel like my mandate is as a children's author well jw thank you so much for uh spending some time with us here today where is the best place to get your books anywhere uh amazon's really easy they have it all most bookstores have them they're out there so most of all the the latest ones at least keep on scaring us 